I miss you. I was actually enjoying that immensely, watching all the animated and beautiful connect conversations and connections that were being made just there. I want to say something about that. The, um, the Hebrew, the Jewish term for a, a study hall is a Beit Midrash. It's translated usually as a house of study, but Lidrosh in Hebrew means to search or to inquire. So when you do Midrash, an inquiry. Uh, so when you do a drash, yeah, you are doing an inquiry into the text. Um, you're not just studying the text. In fact, what you're all doing is Torah study. In the Jewish tradition, Torah study is not declaiming the text. Torah study is inquiring into the deeper meaning of the text. It's an act of seeking. And one of the reasons I love being part of a Jewish spiritual community, a synagogue, and uh, even though I perfectly enjoy teaching, say, in an academic setting, is that here, the purpose of our study together is to seek, to inquire into our own experience. Right? That's, not, that's not superfluous, that's essential. It's absolutely essential in a Jewish setting that we ask ourselves, what does this mean to me? If we don't, it's not going to help us grow. Right? And it's not going to be a source of a roadmap for our ethical and spiritual journey. So it's important to understand that when you come here, this is what we're doing. What does this mean to me? And how is this going to affect my journey? You know, that becomes a secondary question in academic study. It affects us inevitably. It impacts us inevitably. But we are after some other kind of uh, pseudo-objectivity in those settings. Or semi-objectivity. I don't want to demean, demean it at all. Um, I don't mean that at all. I love, I love academic study. Um, so we were just involved. This is our house of inquiry. That's what a Beit Midrash means. So I really appreciate that, and I want you to understand that study in the Jewish setting is a study of your interaction with the text. What is this about for me? And what can I put back into the conversation so that it's a living conversation? That's why Torah is a living activity and not a field of academic study. That would be the field of Old Testament studies or Hebrew Bible studies, but that's not Torah study. So I just wanted to make that clear, that that's, that's what we get to do here. We get to be together on a search for understanding, deeper sense of purpose in life, and um, appreciation, um, ethics, all of that. But, all, but most importantly, how it impacts us when we walk out the room. So. I, I really appreciate you getting to do that together. And yes, you could have talked the whole time. It's so beautiful. It's just so beautiful. And now I want us all to talk together. And I'd like us to talk together by inviting anybody to share one of these passages that was particularly um, uh, lighten up for you. Uh, and, and we'll talk about it. Jerome. We started with uh, the ineffable. Great. <laughs> The very first one. Yeah, we 
what, it, what does inevitable mean? Yeah, and going through this, we decided that it had different meanings. Of, yeah. Ineffable is going to have different meanings. This is ineffable. It it can't it it, ha, it can't be it can't be. What is what is the root of that word? Anybody know? Um, I think um, I'm thinking of the word effigy. Yeah. Effable. In other words, having a form or shape. Uh-huh. I am guessing that ineffable means it has no form or shape. Um, and uh, uh, so that it can't be, the ineffable can't be captured in a definition. I think it's probably where it comes from. So, uh, I wondered if it's also related to efforting at all. I wonder. What? Efforting. Effort. Effigy. F. <laughs> Your mother would know, bless her heart. Miriam, what do you think? <laughs> You think so? Okay, yeah. Rabbi Google. Is from yeah. Like the FA, which means to, to do, to make. Oh, yes. Incapable of being expressed or described in words. Thank you. Incapable of being expressed or described in words. And look at the root, ar- the, the um, uh, word origin. What's it say? Uh, from the Latin word something. <laughs> <laughs> But the, the, second, uh, the second definition is not to be spoken because of its sacredness. Unutterable. Unutterable. So the first one is, read, read the first one again. Incapable of being expressed or described in words. So incapable of being expressed and? Um, or the other is not to be spoken because of its sacredness. It's, so it's different between um, inexpressible and unutterable. Right. And the ineffable name of God uh, in Judaism is the name that we cannot pronounce and that we must not pronounce. Um, or it says, citizens of two realms, mm-hmm. one must sustain a dual allegiance. Right, so we were just still on, just sec, Jerome, we were just still on what ineffable means. Oh, okay. Um, um, and in Hebrew it's called, in English it's called the ineffable name, in Hebrew it's called the Shem HaMeforash, which I'm not even sure what that means, but it's the four-letter name, which we don't say, and uh, his first book, the first book that Heschel wrote was a book of Yiddish poetry when he was a very young man. And it's named in Yiddish, Der Shem HaMechfeuresh Mensch. In other words, God's ineffable name, colon, the human being. The Mensch meaning the human being, because it was, so God's ineffable name for him is imprinted is, is, is uh, experienced when we encounter another human being. So we're not in the realm of logic here. We're in the realm of experience. So, um, Marco, would you read that first one aloud, the whole, the whole thing? Would you mind? Ineffable. The search of reason ends at the shore of the known. On the immense expanse beyond it, only the sense of the ineffable can glide. It alone knows the root to that which is remote from experience and understanding. Neither of them is amphibious. Reason cannot go beyond the shore, and the sense of the ineffable is out of place where we measure, where we weigh. We do not leave the shore of the known in search of adventure or suspense, or because of the failure of reason to answer our questions. Mm. We sail because our mind is like a fantastic seashell, and when applying our ear to its lips, 
we hear a perpetual murmur from the waves beyond the shore. Citizens of two realms, we all must sustain a dual allegiance. We sense the ineffable in one realm. We name and exploit reality in another. Between the two, we set up a system of references, but we can never fill the gap. They are as far and as close to each other as time and calendar, as violin and melody, as life and what lies beyond the last breath. Beautiful. So it's just beautiful. And not a passage that will necessarily uh, reveal itself to us through our word-by-word analysis. Right? Uh, it's ineffable. right? He's, he's using language to point us to the place beyond language in a way. So, but I'd love to hear your responses and thoughts, and if you have any you want to share to that paragraph. And there's no hurry because we're all hanging out on the shore of the. Yeah. Well, we didn't talk about that reading. We talked about two others, but the others had the same dichotomy between, you know, what is the holy and what is, you know, uh, the everyday. The everyday. And with the themes in the other two that we read, and that just seems to be reflected here as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which are the other two that you read? Uh, surrendering to stillness and tragic or holy. Oh, let's just. I'll just. Oh, yes. Okay. No, let's wait. We'll read them soon. Other people have things they want to share. Steve. Uh, we were discussing this, and uh, for my part, I, I mentioned that I find it very hard to comfortably be in both realms at the same time. Nicely put. All the time. And I go from one day bouncing into one realm far more and another day I may be in the other realm and, and look at, how did I get in the second realm the other day? That sounds so unreasonable. <laughs> and, and, and another day I'll say, how could I not be in that quote unreasonable one because that's really where I should be. And it's so hard to, to be in both comfortably. And one thing Heschel, and people like Jonathan Sachs are able to write so well is they appear to be able to meld the two realms into a unified realm that appears sane and comfortable, whereas I wind up bouncing back and forth between one and the other most of the time. That's really well put, thank you. I would say that the reason they they seem to be successful in melding the two worlds is they accept the fundamental paradox of their experience. If we are, if we will, if we are not satisfied until we know this, the one right way of thinking about this, we will always feel ourselves tugged. But if we can embrace this whole of um, oh, um, I have both of these going on at the same time, and somehow. Uh, we, we set up a system of references between the two, but we can never quite fill the gap. Then maybe I can, maybe it's more, maybe once accepting that, it becomes easier to uh, uh, integrate it all. Does that make sense? Well, yes, but I also brought up uh, an example. I'm, I'm reading a book for a club I belong to, Daniel Defoe's uh, 
uh, journal of uh, the diary of a plague year. Wow. And uh, it was written in the mid 1600s about the great Daniel Defoe, uh, Robinson, Robinson Crusoe. Crusoe. Yeah. And and basically he describes how people were praying and all the church fathers were praying, and we know now prayers had nothing to do with it. We know it was bacterial carried by fleas on rats. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, uh, of course, they didn't know that in the 1600s. They didn't have the rationale and the reason, mm -hmm. so they felt it was all religious or mystical or mm -hmm. ineffable. Mm -hmm. So my concern is that the smarter we get scientifically, the more we know, the smaller the mysterious becomes. Ah, I hear you. So let, let me say something to that. I think you're, con I think, I disagree with the categories. It's not rational and irrational. And the more we figure out the rational um, explanation for the disease, the less irrationality there'll be. That's true. It's about the rational and the non-rational. The non-rational is our mind that is a fantastic seashell that reaches beyond the shores of reason. That's not irrational. So, so the prayer for healing, that's an attempt at rational problem solving, right? There's a, we believe there's a God. We'll pray to the God. God will bring healing. That's not what Heschel's talking about. Heschel's talking about what uh, uh, an Einstein experiences uh, contemplating the universe. Uh, even if he managed to make his unified theory, that wouldn't change the sense of ineffable glory that he experiences witnessing the laws of the universe unfold. Do you follow what I'm saying? I do. We, we talked about Einstein's God in our discussion. Uh -huh. and, and Einstein's God was Spinoza's God. And, yes. And, and of course, the Jews at that time excommunicated Spinoza. Yes, in the 1600s, yes. Right. But of course, now he's on an Israeli stamp. So yes. His, his God yes. is making a comeback. Uh, let me share something with you that my teacher, Richie Hirsch, Rabbi Richard Hirsch, said. What Judaism bequeaths to us is not a specific concept of God, but the requirement for a relationship with God. Concepts of God are human creations limited by our conceptual capability at the time and can in, and change and evolve as human thought, understanding, and culture changes and evolves. But a relationship with the ineffable, that goes on in every generation. So I think we get confused by saying, well, that concept of God is incorrect, therefore there's no God. Or that concept that we inherited from our ancestors doesn't work for me. Let it go. Just let it go. What were they seeking for, is the question. They bequeathed that seeking to us. And I think we need to keep that distinction in mind, and that's why I share it with you. Uh, yes, Spinoza's God. Spinoza was way ahead of his time. Um, and Galileo was, laughed, you know, was excommunicated, too, for observing reality and making his conclusions. Uh, and then they turned out to be right. None of that changes our desire here in a house of inquiry to have a relationship with the infinite. One thing that our minds will never 
be able to wrap ourselves around is that the universe has no end. It's like, <laughs> I tried as a kid, you know. It's like, or that it's curved, or, or, or. It's like, we'll still be marveling, no matter how much we ever understand. But that will be what, what our, that's going to be our redemption, right? Are the seeds of destruction are when we stop to marvel. And that's Heschel's point. When we think that our minds are going to solve all the problems, and so uh, we, be, we think we then become like gods. We are going to become more and more like gods, right? We've cracked the genetic code. We're going to be creating creatures in our lifetimes. We're going to, it's like unbelievable what's going to happen. I have no idea what it's going to mean. I don't know. It's like that's still not going to, even cracking the genetic code isn't going to make us uh, uh, able to grasp the infinite. Uh, yes? Right. He so calls it a system of references. So that's why we, we all really have a different one, right? Because it has to work for you to connect with that. Mm -hmm. and, and maybe it works for a while, and then that one doesn't work. And then you can do another one. But it's like a tool. The concept is a tool. It's not a set thing. That's right. right? We confuse concept with reality, yeah. and therefore we become idolaters. Right? Idol worship is when we place something less than everything and say, that's God. That's idolatry in the Jewish tradition. Uh, Miriam? I just want to say one and, more Oh, yes, yes. And then we'll, go, we'll get everybody a chance to talk. Tamach, the dawn, has away from the immense, because it's talking about nature, but anyway, cloistered in our... No, read the whole thing. Oh, the whole... Oh, wait, Tamach, the dawn? Yeah, Away from the immense, Bam. cloistered in our own concepts, we may scorn and revile everything. But standing between earth and sky, we are silenced by the sight. I should have read the whole thing, but that idea we're cloistered in our own concepts. Yes, and that is so our we nature. Get we get stuck in our own concepts. Cool, Just like scientists get stuck in the latest theory, thinking it, everything must align with it until there's a scientific revolution that blows up the last theory. Uh, the scientific theories are not reality. They are the best approximation of how the world works that we've come up with yet. And then we find out there's a better one. We're not at the end of knowledge yet. God knows. Uh, uh, Miriam, Anne, and then Steve again. Yeah, those good old middle ages, I always say. It's like they had to live in the middle. Well, I was joking, Anne, because whenever I go to... No, 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 I just want to say, whenever I go to a Renaissance fair, and everybody's like jousting and, you know, and having these... I say, those good old middle ages. I... Right, right. That's what, the, that's what we're saying in what you were saying about um, Defoe. Defoe, uh-huh. Why, why they couldn't expand it more and heal. You'll find out, really look at what was causing the plague. I wonder what the next revolution yeah. in human consciousness is going to be that transforms the way we view life. You know, because uh, we take it for granted. 
uh, what we know now and assume it's true because how else are you going to get through the day? But we have to keep a part of us on the shore of the ineffable, right? So that we, we remember that this is a construction of reality that we've created by consensus at this point and that we need to always be open to the next version. Uh, um, and um, Our group read uh, the ineffable also. Uh-huh. And the last line of it says, uh, they are as far and as close, excuse me, let me begin the sentence before that. Between the two, we set up a system of references, but we can never fill the gap. They are as far and as close to each other as time and calendar, as violin and melody, as life and what lies beyond the last breath. And then we all gave personal experiences. Oh, that would be a great, what a beautiful thing. So, for example, a violin is something that you can see, you can hold, you can touch, you can feel, it's physical. However, allowing yourself to get lost in its music is to be in a completely different realm. That's perfect, thank you. That explains it perfectly, yes. Yes. And do you look at a calendar, same thing. It's physical, you can look at it, you can turn the pages, blah, 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 blah. blah. But it's... Time? Defining time? (laughs) 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 It's explaining what Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday (laughs) means. Right, which is a complete construction. Complete construction, yeah. So that we could know where to show up and when. Uh-huh. So I think that they were in a different realm. Who's they? Oh, on the picture? Yeah. At that moment? They went to a different realm. A realm of consciousness. Right, because we're talking about, we're talking about levels of awareness. That's what we're talking about here. We're all living in the same world, and we can experience it at different levels of awareness. And if we impoverish ourselves by ignoring the ineffable, because it doesn't fit into either a comfort zone or our concept of what reality is, we have impoverished ourselves, but we've also endangered ourselves and those around us. And that gets best expressed in Judaism in the idea of Shabbat and the seventh year as we were studying last last week in the Torah portion. The purpose of Shabbat, the seventh day, is to restore the biggest picture. Right? So that when we go back to our workaday, detailed lives, we remember that, this is the most beautiful thing, perpetual murmur from the waves beyond the shore. Right? We let infinity sort of uh, be present in our finite lives. It gives us a little, it expands us a little, it gives us, makes us more permeable. All those things that humans have a tendency to forget. And so that's why um, one of Heschel's most important works, most popular works, was called the Sabbath, which he called a cathedral in time. And he said, we have to keep stepping into the cathedral in time uh, on a regular basis so that we restore that sense of mystery and grandeur, so that we go back into our lives with reverence and wonder, and not just with... um, uh, utilitarian aims uh, that we see the, the gift that is around us at all times of life. 
Did you want to say something, Phoebe? Oh, well, we, uh, I was, what we were struck by was the no neutrality, and I must say that that's partly what we're talking about, going back and forth. It's a very short one on the top of, an, of uh, a page called No Neutrality. Yeah. Uh, uh, I'm not sure that I can. Shall I read it, or do you want to? Yeah, well, the, the world is not, a, is not a vacuum. Either we make it an altar for God, or it, it is invaded. It, uh, it, it is Oh shoot! Invaded, invaded by, by oh, it is invaded by demons. There can be no neutrality. Either we are ministers of the sacred or slaves of devils. Of evil. Of evil. We were talking about how how the devils just creep in. Uh-huh. <laughs> the evil, the devils. She yeah, read it, as it, but slaves of evil. And so that we're always back and forth between one state and the other, which is what... That's right, that's right. And that's part of the paradox, again, which is that our our experience of the ineffable, the glory, mystery, wonder, that essentially makes us human beings, right? That gives us our poetic soul, the place our soul is observing, not just our analytical mind. All of that um, is essential as far as a Heschel is concerned, as far as I'm concerned, to being a mensch, to being a full human being. But it's not sufficient. It's a paradox. At the same time, or it's, it's a paradox? No, it's like, it's not sufficient. At the same time that we have to nurture that awareness, our presence in the world is asking something from us. It's not now I'm going to just sit and, and count uh, flower petals for the rest of my life. Something is asked of me to take this large awareness and apply it to this world of light and dark, of shadow and, you know, of good and evil. So we're moral actors and we're supplicants and uh, before the mystery of creation. We're both. Judaism tries to answer that question because it's, it's a, such a strange our, our existence is strange in that way. Which shall we choose? You know, uh, let me just finish the thought, and then I'll, I'm, uh, you're on, Steve. Um, uh, which shall we choose? And for Heschel, and for me, the reading of Judaism is, is that we are, as it were, God's partners in creation. That when it says that we are made in the divine <coughs> image, it means we have been endowed with the ability to make moral choices in the world, to, dis- to, to think, act, and decide based on our highest, the highest principles we can determine. So that our job as human beings is both, it says in Psalm, 1, in Psalm 27, I, all I want to do is sit in your divine presence and bask in the glow, right? It's a beautiful line, all the days of my life. And God says, yeah, you can do that on Shabbos. <laughs> then get out there and make my world the way it's supposed to be. You know, so we, we, the, another way to say that is at the same time in Judaism that we intuit the majesty of creation, we also intuit that there's a moral law inherent in being a human being. There's a demand 
and that in Judaism they cannot be separated. They both come from the source. And that's why when we, when we chant the Kiddush on Friday evening and we say, we, we celebrate the Sabbath day because God, liberate, because God created the world in six days and on the seventh God rested, that's God the creator. And Zecher Litziat Mitzrayim, because we were slaves in Egypt, but now we're free. So God is both the creator and the liberator. And it's just both. And we have to deal with it as Jews. Uh, Steve. Yeah, I was going to say there's a book on Kabbalah by David Cooper yes. called God is a Verb. Very helpful title, yes. Yeah. And that, that I can relate to. And that's why Jewish mysticism gives a breath of fresh air as it comes back into the discourse of Jewish life where it had kind of been shoved way to the margin for about 100 years. And again, since the 1960s, Jewish mysticism has re-emerged as part of our um, palette for how to understand what Judaism has to teach us. And it's just a great thing because in, in Kabbalah, God is not... An, um, a, a being as a noun, as we've talked about for so many years. God is being as in verb. And we can then embrace, and that's why I said a concept of God versus a relationship with God. Fortunately, we're in a position where we can mine centuries and centuries of Jews putting God into different conceptual frameworks and then find the one that speaks to us so that we can we can grow in it, grow with it. And uh, I think it's a great thing. Uh, Ruth and then Miriam? I picked the neutrality one, but I, have, I would like you to explicate one thing that kind of came back and bonked me on the head, which is the use of the word neutrality, which kind of happens on Shabbos. Yes, on Shabbos. Right? Shabbos yes. is where we refuel. We leave the fray. Or shall we say, we expand <coughs> our perspective beyond the fray. And we're restored, in the way I look at it, by the sense that, oh, there's the human drama. That's where the action is. We're going back to it. But in the meantime, let me restore my sense of mystery, wonder, and wholeness. Yeah. Right? That's what Shabbat is for. Otherwise... We live and die by the drama of our existence, and mostly we, mostly we get fried by it, right? If not, it, never more than now in my experience in the last year or so. I need Shabbos more than ever. You know, you say, this too shall pass. That's not fatalistic, that's true. Right, right, okay. So on my, in the night... When I went to the Weavers reunion concert in 1980 in Carnegie Hall, um, Lee Hayes was one of the four Weavers. They were, do you all know who the Weavers were? Yeah. They were so, um, and he was very old and sick at that point. He was actually in a wheelchair, with, and, but he was there. And he, he said, um, it was right after Reagan was elected, and he said, Listen, I've been alive a long time, he says to the whole audience, and uh, uh, I, I, I've seen a lot, and I want you to know, this too shall pass. I've had kidney stones, and I know. <laughs> so, 
I've always remembered that line. I have that tape. I have that tape too, yeah. yeah. But I was also at that concert, I must say. When I got to that concert, I didn't have a ticket. I, was in college, I, was, uh, I just said, I've got to go. So I drove down, it was sold out. I'm standing there at the entrance, and the lady comes up to me and says, do you want a ticket? <laughs> Anyhow, Miriam. Right, I was thinking of Ferdinand the Bull. You know. <laughs> I had to, um, my favorite author these days, she grew, grew up in Ramallah, in era. but what she did when she was about 9, 10, 11, struggling, is there a God? So she picked a daisy and was going, there is, there isn't, and she got tired of it, and she says, there's a God because I want one. <laughs> oh, beautiful. <laughs> I thought that was a, you know, it's like, yeah, if we are ready and available, then yeah. we're, we're, we're giving of ourselves. And it, that's what she did. It was a beautiful. Yeah. I like that. Not just sitting there with these signs. Oh, that's beautiful. Thank you. M Marka. Um, I'm just very happy lately with a pretty instant antidote to feeling like I know anything, which is what is my body going to do next? And what is my next thought going to be? And it's like the second I start to feel like, oh, I know something, that's just such a perfect, because like, I had no idea my hand was just going to snap. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> so how in control are we then? Uh, yeah, it's a, I mean, it's a pretty strong uh, reality check for me to do that one. That's beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Um, Miriam. Uh, we read two books. The, the one surrendering to stillness, which is on the, the first page after the. Would you read it to us? It's on the first page. We do not refuse to pray, we abstain from it. We ring the hollow bell of selfishness rather than absorb the stillness that surrounds the world, hovering over all the restlessness and fear of life, the secret stillness that precedes our birth and succeeds our death. Futile self-indulgence brings us out of tune with the gentle song of nature's waiting, of mankind's striving for salvation. Is not listening to the pulse of wonder worth silence and abstinence from self-asserting? Why do we not set apart an hour of living for devotion to God by surrendering to stillness? And the first thing I, I said was, if it didn't have the word God in it, it could be Buddhist. Could be Zen. Right. And so, again, don't assume you understand what Heschel means when he says God. Right. Right. But for him, what he calls God is a felt reality. Right. Uh, but that doesn't mean he has a definition for you. And he will call it, he will call it by a thousand names. Here it's a melody. There it's stillness. Here it's the horizon. There it's something. You know, right? Yeah. But it, what runs through all of these is a dichotomy, a, a paradox, what Buddhists would call a koan. You know, right. To, uh, two things you have to hold in your mind at the same time. That's right, a koan. Opposites. Thank you. Koan is a good word. Uh, yeah. Ivy. And, and oh, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Um, we were talking about why does he say, why do we not set apart an hour of living? Uh, uh, you know, does it take an hour? Does it take five minutes? How long does it take to devote yourself to the stillness? And Ron said, well, that's what Shabbat is. Yes. And that's what prayer is every day if it was our discipline. Because where he's when he says that, he is probably 
in the back of his mind, remembering a famous um, uh, passage in the Talmud from Brachot. From the, there's a, a, a tractate about how to pray. And um, it says that the Vatikim, uh, Vatikim means like uh, the old timers, uh, but there's a better word for that. The, 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 the elders, the, the real sages, the one, before they used to pray, used to spend an hour preparing to pray. Now, again, it says Sha'ah. That doesn't mean 60 minutes, right? But it's clear that even that, that, that the instructions for prayer, if you're going to be a real practitioner of it, it's going to be your, your spiritual practice, is that you have to spend an hour preparing for prayer. It, whatever, it doesn't say more than that, but I think that's the hour he's talking about. The stillness, the way you, where you put aside your self-asserting and you open yourself in that way. Yeah, and it is. It is, it says. It's a universal human discovery, I think, when someone of that temperament spends enough time waiting and allowing, they discover something magnificent, the pulse of creation. Yes. Ivy? So... The latest neurological evidence is that we actually have this issue in our brain that you're speaking to. There's a place that uh, processes felt awareness, and there's a place that processes thinking about things. Uh. Mm. What's really fascinating if it's true, you know, I, we always overturn our discoveries, but if it's true, they cannot operate in parallel at the same time. Oh. One is on, one switches off. One comes on, the other one switches off. We can learn, but we have to practice, to go back and forth very fast so that we can use the felt awareness data for our thinking. Oh. awareness and vice versa they're meant to be fed together but serially not parallel so our brains give us this problem in a sense you know our attention is either on facts and thinking about them and thinking about the violin it's 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 brown and it's this and it's this or we're feeling how the music affects us uh-huh Thank you. And then that just once again begs the question, why are we made this way? <laughs> right? But I mean that as, as like, that, why? Uh, and there we continue to inquire, you know? And uh, it's such a mysterious, amazing, wonderful thing. Creation we are. That's why oneness is so difficult. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's right, that's right. And that's why when we talk about what any, any, any um, book or lesson or conversation about meditation is, just when I got there, I said to myself, oh, I'm, I think I'm doing it, and then it's over. Right? As a, and that's the, that's the paradox of spiritual practice. Uh, it just is. That's the way it is. And yet, we can't function without both, not to our full potential. So here we are. It's just a marvelous, marvelous question. So then, 
this is one element of religious questing. Now, you might ask yourself, well, what good is it? You know, how's this going to make the world a better place? What am I supposed to... Well, I, I would say it puts us closer to reality. If we think that all the world needs is our doing and not our presence, then maybe that's how we got into this fix in the first place. Um, and so, so, yes, being a human being is incredibly complicated. A beautiful challenge. We could think of it as a cursed, but that's not how Judaism, Judaism says it's good. A beautiful challenge that we're faced with. Two, ah, let's read one of his that I love. Um, look at the page, the, next to la- the, the last page of the horizontal teachings where it says unique on top. Looking upon myself from the perspectives of society, I am an average person. Facing myself intimately, immediately, I regard myself as unique, as exceedingly precious, not to be exchanged for anything else. No one will live my life for me. No one will think my thoughts for me or dream my dreams. In the eyes of the world, I am an average man. But to my heart, I am not an average man. To my heart, I am of great moment. Here's the line. The challenge I face is how to actualize the quiet eminence of my being. Maybe that's what we're here to do. Don't find your light under a bushel. Right. The challenge I face is how to actualize the quiet eminence of my being. Now, he's not being arrogant because he's saying, Every person. This is the challenge every person faces. Um, we are just, we are just, we're all human beings. And, you know, I'm not that special, but I am that special. I've been thinking about that line. I'm thinking about people I know. I've been, I'm, at this point in my life, I'm getting to express myself in all kinds of ways. And I'm thinking of people I know of such gifts and who feel like somehow they shouldn't really take up space or they, you know, and uh, that's not what God wants, says Heschel. (laughs) That mystery that created us didn't create us to hide ourselves under a bushel. Yeah, I love that line. The challenge I face is how to actualize the quiet eminence of my being. Yes? You dealt with that same one in the balance uh, Carol actually was, was discussing was how do you do that at the same time be humble? Right. That's, the, that's another, another beautiful challenge. How do, you, how do you do this while still remaining humble about your place in the world without getting confused that I'm more special than everybody else? Right? That's the trick. It's that if everyone is unique, everyone is unique. That means that there's no in-between with the word unique. <laughs> One of my pet language peeves is when someone says, that's a pretty unique idea. And I say, no, 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 no. It's either unique or it's not unique. Anyway, um, listen for it. Uh, so if I'm unique, then everyone, every, every, every one of God's creatures is unique. So that has to be the check for humility. 
I'm busy working on actualizing my blessed eminence. You know, the the when I look in the mirror, the the what I see peering from deep within, beyond all my judgments and negative thoughts. That's true of everyone else as well. The only way to read Heschel is to 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 embrace all of these dualities. In fact, he let's read. Um, Let's read a cut. Look at the page with the, the small print, Paradox and Polarity. A necessary condition affecting human beliefs and philosophy and religion is the paradox. The source of their paradoxical character has its origin in the essential polarity of human being. To ignore the paradox, is to miss the truth. Jewish thinking and living can only be adequately understood in terms of a dialectic pattern containing opposite or contrasted properties. This goes right back to Steve, you know, describing our human situation. As in a magnet, the ends of which have opposite magnetic qualities, these terms are opposite to one another and exemplify a polarity which lies at the very heart of Judaism, the polarity of ideas and events, of mitzvah and sin, of kavanah, which means your inner intention and deed, of regularity versus spontaneity, of uniformity and individuality, of halacha and agada, of law and inwardness, of love and fear, of understanding and obedience, of joy and discipline, of the good and the evil drive, of time and eternity, of this world and the world to come, of revelation and response, of insight and information, of empathy and self-expression, of creed and faith, of the word and that which is beyond words, of man's quest for God and God in search of man. Even God's relation to the world is characterized by the polarity of justice and mercy, providence and concealment, the promise of reward and the demand to serve him for its, his own sake. Taken abstractly, all these terms seem to be mutually exclusive. Yet in actual rising, they involve each other. The separation of the two is fatal to both. Since each of the two principles moves in the opposite direction, equilibrium can only be maintained if both are of equal force. But such a condition is rarely attained. Polarity is an essential trait of all things. Tension contrast and contradiction characterize all of reality. However, there is a polarity in everything except God, for all tension ends in God. God is beyond all dichotomies. Wow. The comment I want to make is, first of all, I think his description of reality is really a good one for me. That matches mine. Um, so he's a teacher I want to learn from in that case. And because um, he's observing the world as it is. And what does he mean when he says all tension ends in God? Here's what I want to share with you. He is a Jewish mystic. Heschel was a full-fledged, incredibly scholarly and personally mystical 
personality. His, ta- his role, as I told you in the first class, at the Jewish Theological Seminary was he was the professor of Jewish ethics and mysticism. One of his best articles, which I didn't get to share with you, he wrote in 1949, called The Mystical Element in Judaism. Uh, anyway, he's written a lot about it. So here's a guy who's immersed in the map of the universe that Kabbalah offers. And the map of the universe that Kabbalah offers, remember, it's a map. It's not reality. It's a map of reality that we find useful to navigate reality. That's what, that's what belief systems are. You know, and if we have an outdated belief system, we're going to get lost on the, in reality. We're not, so we're looking for roadmaps. Uh, Kabbalah, the tree of life, is a roadmap of reality. And the tree of life is founded on polarity and tension. There's a central pillar to the tree, and it remains, it remains stable because on either side of the tree are sirot, or attributes, that live in di- creative dynamic tension. Mercy and judgment, or love and discipline. Um, uh, um, uh, I'm down at the lower triad. Uh, not, oh, oh, I'm thinking, hmm? Oh yeah, hod and netzach, like drive and reflection and, and echo, hod is sort of an echo. Up top, there's chokhmah, which is insight, and bina, which is reflection, right? So, and they also use a lot of masculine and feminine imagery. The insemination of insight and the gestation of pregnancy, right? They, they use, but the point here is that each sphera on its own, each is in tension with the one opposite. We see the contradiction of reality. And yet, in the experience of the tree, it all leads to a name of God called Ein Sof, which means without end, limitless. No personality, no attributes, no gender, no tension. And so, uh, um, I really see um, Heschel translating the God concepts of Kabbalah into language here that we can relate to. Because we live in an era of quantum mechanics and an ever-expanding universe, and it's not a static universe for us anymore, right? We, we're not the center, and the planets and stars aren't revolving around us. None of that's so anymore. And fortunately, the Kabbalistic map is a map that can speak to us today and Heschel's one of its translators but he's not for because for him that's and for for many uh very learned Jews who have studied Kabbalah Kabbalah is like the um um the level of understanding that allows us to embrace all these paradoxes and still have God present in our lives so I, I wanted to share that because I hear so much of Kabbalah echoed in the way he talks, and why Kabbalah has been a useful reality map for many modern Jews, and others too. Does someone have another one they wanted to read?
Oh, yeah. May I? Did you pick one? No, I was just going to say, Heckel is just so beautiful. And I think that I've never read all of the Sabbath because I read the beginning. Oh yeah, I read them one paragraph at a time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I can't. I, I can't. I can't take him in in large doses because I'm. But to. not because it's because I'm full. Yeah. No, you can right. start. It's like I just ate a meal and it's like I don't want any more right now. <laughs> and the same thing over and over is just as enriching. Right. Right. So thank you so much. You can just open the book. Right, you can open one of his books and sort of like do a do a kind of like point and and read, yeah, and see what you get because he's using language to convey this in as many metaphors as he can, as many ways as he can, and it's all grounded in his kind of complete immersion in Jewish thought. Ivy. Oh, I love this one. It says exactly the third <coughs> Hold on, let's all get to it, and then you can read it to us. It's that the last page. The one we were just reading. Yeah, right. Look at Wonder and Radical Amazement. So I'm at the third paragraph. As civilization advances, the sense of wonder declines. Such decline is an alarming symptom of our state of mind. Mankind will not perish for want of information, but only for want of appreciation. Oh boy. Oh boy. Mankind will not perish for want of information, but only for want of appreciation. That's so beautiful. The beginning of our happiness lies in the understanding that life without wonder is not worth living. What we lack is not a will to believe, but a will to wonder. He's not asking us to believe anything, but to experience. There's a line in Psalms that uh, says, taste and see how good God's creation is. And it's just a great line, because it says, taste it and see it. Don't, don't, don't write a theory about it. Taste and see. And God looked at everything that God had made, and behold, it was very good. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Isn't that marvelous? I just read it in Sanskrit, the word for taste and feel, and the ineffable is all the same. Really? Yeah, it's rasa. Rasa? Rasa? Marvelous. Sanskrit is another. You could, just like Hebrew, you could, I gather, I've never done it, you could immerse yourself in Sanskrit in the same way. Yeah. Uh, layers and layers, words that are like sandwiches of, of meanings. And beauty. And beauty. Let me read you another one that. Uh, the one I was looking at was. Oh, the one that says expectations. Over and above personal problems, there is an objective challenge 
to overcome inequity, injustice, helplessness, suffering, carelessness, oppression. Over and above the din of desires, there is a calling, a demanding, a waiting, an expectation. There is a question that follows me wherever I turn. What is expected of me? What is demanded of me? What we encounter is not only flowers and stars, mountains and walls. Over and above all things is a sublime, sublime expectation, a waiting for. With every child born, a new expectation enters the world. This is the most important experience in the life of every human being. Something is asked of me. Every human being has had a moment in which he sensed a mysterious waiting for him. Meaning is found in responding to the demand. Meaning is found in sensing the demand. Isn't that marvelous? There's the paradox again. And I think the, the paradox of, well, what are we... I thought radical amazement was enough. <laughs> and, and here's... I just had an insight that I want to share with you. Because what Judaism asks of us and assumes about human beings is that to fulfill our humanness, we must be in relationship with God. God, shorthand, a word, with the ultimate, with the mystery, so that in being in relationship is a two-way street. On the one hand, we, we offer our praise and our wonder and our, you know, here, you know, take me, life, take me. I'm ready. You know, those beautiful moments when if, it wasn't enough, if this was the last one, it's good enough, you know. And, uh, and yet, it's a two-way street. There's also God in search of man, as Heschel says. There's a calling we experience, a waiting for, a demand. It's all the same. It's all part of the same relationship with infinity. That out of that mystery, there's also this sense that we're here for a reason. That doesn't mean to save the world. It might mean, but we're, we're not just spectators. There's something called of us moment to moment. Isn't that magnificent? Mm. So we are in a dynamic relationship with the ineffable. the quiet eminence of our being. We can't ignore it, or we're not fulfilling our, our, our potential and purpose. And that fulfillment is not necessarily through acts and deeds, though that includes that. It's also through how we present ourselves to the world. So here we are in a house of inquiry, 
in a synagogue, in a holy community. One of the purposes of which is to clarify for us what we're doing here. So that we go out not just with a list, a laundry list of things to do, but with an understanding that it's important that we're here. And we can give each other that. That's definitely going to make the world a better place. When my daughter calls me from Israel and she's lost in her anxiety again, what's called of me? You know, what's, what, and it's not just having the right strategy for the conversation. There's something deeper that's asked of me there. And it's hard. I wish she hadn't called. I don't want to have this conversation again. But I'm totally in covenant to have the, to be there, you know. What's called of me? My daughter describes the difference between a cistern, a cistern, and a well. A cistern goes dry, mm. and a well you get nourished. Your daughter gave you that metaphor. Yes. Because that comes out of the Hasidic, uh, the, the the Jewish mystical teaching and too. What she was saying is like when she comes to visit me and her other mother, she gets nourished from the well, and she feels dry. Oh, so. There's this, I'm so glad she said that. There's, this, there's a strong Jewish teaching of whether to be a cistern or a well. A ma'ayan, which is a well, or a bor, which is a cistern. Because a cistern assumes that it's a closed system and therefore runs dry. And a well is being recharged from the aquifer. So your daughter needed recharging. Right, so then I have to remember that I'm, a, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the well she can drink from. But you can also... But then I need to drink from other people's wells also. <laughs> like, believe me, like I'm doing right now. <laughs> right, like I'm doing right now. So then we can go and be the well. Go and be the well. Mm, that's beautiful, Miriam. Thank you. That goes along with that show the time is endless. And that... No matter that hour we take to prepare to pray, or the time we pray, it's endless. It's just going to go on and on and on. And he really made me feel that today. Mm. That because time to him is so important. But yet you can't, you're never going to stop it. And it's just going to continue. Right. We have many, many, many stories, shows, and movies about conquering time and being able to travel through time, which are my favorite stories. <laughs> and I love them. I never get tired of time travel stories. And yet, when we think about the horizon of human uh, uh, knowledge, um, it, humans may eventually prove me wrong, but I have a feeling time is going to uh, continue to be a substrate of that we don't uh, conquer. <laughs> of course, I could be wrong. That'll be interesting. 
Right. I also have, I have great theories. I love thinking about this. I love thinking about this. So fun. Sometimes I've been thinking, um, I think because my parents are both gone, and I, for some reason, I see things, I feel accompanied by them in a certain yes. way. Yes, yeah. Um, because they aren't really here to go and tell about something, right? But I, and I'm older, and I sort of see things from maybe the way they saw them, you know? And sometimes I think that whole thing about time, if you really connect with memory and the, that sense of being with someone, you know, what is time, you know? Right. Yeah, just like, you know another great mystery thing about parents and getting older and is, is, is that something I'll never understand is that the things that I knew and thought and understood when I was 20 years old passionately they're not false but now I understand something different it's just totally incredible and I'm younger than that now, but I was so much older than I'm younger than that now, yeah. And what did you want to say? I wanted to say something that I don't want, want to say. Oh. All right. That's my introduction. Good. <laughs> <clears throat> I'm going to make myself go to the Death Cafe today, tonight. Ah. I've never been to one. Oh, good. Welcome. Um, oh. People have been to. Mm -hmm. oh, yeah. oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Everyone's talking about death and dying and what it, and taking <laughs> yeah, care of dying. Yeah. yeah, real cheery. No, I'm just kidding. It's it really like, is. it's yeah. really important. I have yeah. no idea what to expect. And I wonder, I mean, time is going to go on after we all are not here. Um, and, um, but this is about facing and talking about your own death and how you feel about it. Mm -hmm. And do you have any idea what Heschel might think about a death cafe? Well, you know, um, the last essay in this book, which obviously we only got to read a couple, is called... Oh, no, 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 it was in this one. <laughs> Let me just look it up. Death as Homecoming. That's the last essay in this book. Um, that, so that's what he has to say about it. Uh, I, I can uh, loan it to you if you want, and you could read it. I'm, I haven't read that one yet. He said something last week in the interview that we were watching... I loved it. It was about perhaps a life after death or what happens after death. Right. And he said, I just don't have any information. He said, we don't know much about, about it. it. Right. I don't have any information about it. And that just makes so much sense to me. Yeah. Right. Right. Given, given that we have, no, we have a lot of intimations mm -hmm. and lots of theories and lots of intuitions about it, but we don't know um, I've made this commitment to myself when the time comes 
to just walk in with a lot of curiosity and find out. <laughs> Since, uh, because what are my alternatives? <laughs> but Anne, you wanted to say something else. Beautiful. I and, love those stories. Uh, I'd like to share mine. Um, Good. I was with my husband when he died um, of cancer, and he was in hospice. And um, at the funeral, before we got to the funeral, um, I saw um, a, hawk, a red-tailed hawk in the sky. And then... Um, at the funeral, a friend of mine uh, did a, t a talk. The, the said, eulogy. Um, the eulogy, do you mean? Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he said, I was thinking this morning about him and all of how incredible he was. And I looked up and uh, I saw a red-tailed hawk. I all, my knees went weak. And he said, and I looked at that hawk, and I said, that is the, ex the, ex um, the essence of ham, the freedom of a bird flying. On the way back from the funeral, we saw another hawk. Um, shortly after the funeral, um, no, much later, because I had a lot of red-tailed hawk experiences. Mm -hmm. um, oh, yeah, hawks don't do this. Mm -hmm. If you look out my living room window back in Connecticut, and then there's five or ten feet of grass, and then there's a um, gravel, um, a dirt, one-car, narrow driveway, and then there's two feet, and then there's a fence. And the fence ends at a fence post. And I happen to be looking out the window. Pretty close. Mm -hmm. And there was a red-tailed hawk sitting mm -hmm. on the fence post. Mm -hmm. They don't do that. Mm -hmm. I screamed for my daughter. And we sat there, and we looked at the hawk mm -hmm. who came mm -hmm. back to the farm. Mm -hmm. For us to see, mm -hmm. for us mm -hmm. to look at. Mm -hmm. And one day, I'll just tell one more. Mm -hmm. I was uh, alone in my uh, community college, and um, I turned a corner onto a, an empty hallway that I had never been in before. And at the very beginning of the hallway, there was um, a glass cage. In the cage was a stuffed bird. I didn't know what kind of a bird it was. And then a man came walking down the hall, and I said, excuse me, but 
can you tell me what kind of a bird this is? And he said, that's a red-tailed hawk. I said, what? <laughs> and he said, yes, he said, I, I put it up. I stuffed it. I said, you did? And then we started a conversation, and it turned out that he was the father of one of my husband's students who, like all his students, adored him beyond adoration. And I started to tell him a little bit about the story of the hawk in my life. And he was, you know, happy to meet me, and we said our goodbyes, and I stayed with the hawk for a while. And then um, I went to the end of the stairway and looked down the uh, stairs, and he was there, and I said, I really feel embarrassed about sharing um, this f part of my story that's so personal. Mm -hmm. And... Um, to somebody that I don't know. And he said, you didn't. Meaning, you didn't tell it to someone you don't know. Oh, beautiful. So, uh, Anne, let's just check. Who here has had experiences where they get intimations like that, that there's a realm beyond ours that's still functioning? Look around. Oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, my, oh. Look around. Okay, it's part of the, you are so not alone in this experience um, that I just wanted you to understand that. Um, and we could spend hours telling our stories that do not fit our cause and effect uh, training about how the universe works. Because um, we all have them, which has led me to the conclusion that there is a realm beyond the three-dimensional realm that is functioning in the universe by a set of laws that uh, we will one day understand. Um, that it, so that's, that's my own conviction. That and a MetroCard will get me on the subway, so, it's not, so I'm, not, I'm, not here to per, I'm not here to persuade anyone that that's true or not true. But my experiences have been overwhelming. And then, of course, being a rabbi and being with people at the time of death and shortly thereafter, when the veil between the worlds is uh, parting, it's like, so uh, you're not the least bit alone. And I'm glad you could. And again, this is a synagogue it is ideally a place where people can tell their stories like that without worrying that like they're making a fool of themselves. I treasure my story, and it still continues to this day. Right. I have my own, which are I love telling because I never get tired of these wondrous stories I had, especially of connection with my father after he passed away. Yeah. Yeah. That reminds me. Today is the yard site of Robin Smith. We announced it in synagogue, and we said Kaddish for her. Um, and yes, I, wasn't here. I know, but I said Miriam. Yes. No, 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 Miriam, I said your name, and I said that Miriam made sure that Robin's on our yard site list. Because last night I lit the candle. Thank you. Thank you. So, thank you, Anne. Um, thank you. It seems clear to me that uh, Heschel also has that experience of our three-dimensional 
laws of nature and all that stuff which function in this level of reality, that there are other levels of reality and that we have been trained at, in as we have been trained by um, pseudoscience and uh, to uh, think that therefore that is the extent of reality. And therefore when we have experiences that don't fit into that reality map, we discount them. Or we try to explain them away or we just say it didn't really happen. And my theory is that our theory is too limited. It's not, a, it's, a, it's a limited roadmap. And whenever we go off the edge of that map, the people who say, no, it, that can't exist because it's not on our map, are limiting their radical amazement because they're trying to come up with an explanation for something that our current theories can't explain. Does that make sense? So uh, I want to draw a bigger map rather than, even if it's like, you know, very, very um, uh, uh, limited in how much we can assess from it, rather than decide that that can't be so because it doesn't fit on this map of reality called scientific uh, theory as it currently stands. Um, So I'll I'll close by reading the very last paragraph on his wonder and radical amazement uh, and I want to thank you all. Thank I think you. we're, this was just what I was hoping to do with you today. Um, oh, oh no, I'll read you the last three paragraphs. After, <laughs> after the one that, the one that uh, we heard before, mankind will not perish for want of information, but only for want of appreciation. Okay, so now go to the next paragraph that is awareness. Awareness of the divine begins with wonder. It is the result of what man does with his higher incomprehension. (laughs) I just love that phrase. It is what we do with our higher incomprehension. The greatest hindrance to such awareness is our adjustment to conventional notions, to mental cliches. Wonder or radical amazement, the state of maladjustment to words and notions, is therefore a prerequisite for an authentic awareness of that which is. Words are a representation of what is, not what is. Radical abasement has a wider scope than any other act of man. While any act of perception or cognition has as its object a selected segment of reality, radical amazement refers to all of reality, not only to what we see, but also to the very act of seeing, as well as to our own selves, to the selves that see, and are amazed at their ability to see. The grandeur or mystery of being is not a particular puzzle to the mind, as, for example, the cause of volcanic eruptions. We do not have to go to the end of reasoning to encounter it. Grandeur or mystery is something with which we are confronted everywhere and at all times. Even the very act of thinking baffles our thinking just as every intelligible fact is, by virtue of its being a fact, drunk with baffling aloofness. Does not mystery reign within reasoning, within perception, within explanation? What formula could explain and solve the enigma of the very act of thinking?
sing, the drunk, uh, when a child, a baby walks, they are they're enthusiastic, they are drunk with the experience, mm -hmm. and it's like that they've come to that place. The religious term for someone like of Heschel's kind of ilk is God intoxicated, <laughs> right? That's, you know, and each of us knows ourselves at times when we've been like that, or people who are always like that. There's a famous story about Simcha Bunim of Prozisnu, I don't know how to pronounce it. He was a Hasidic teacher. And it says about Simcha Bunim that he would start a prayer, and no, he would be reading a line in Torah, and it would say, and God said to Moses, and he would stand up, and he'd just wander around saying, God spoke, God spoke. And he'd wander out into the street, and they never got for any further in Torah study with Simcha Bunim. <laughs> Isn't that a great story? So, that's, uh, that's a good story. So, blessings to all of us on our journeys. Thank you for doing this with me. We'll, I'll figure out something else juicy to do with you next time, and we'll keep, continue learning together. that maybe we can, if not only Heschel, include Heschel once a month or something in whatever we do next. We include Heschel in anything you want. Carry this around with you. Highlight your favorite sentences, because there's enough in one of those bumper stickers to last us all day. And spout it out at any occasion. All right.